Majora's Mask is a story of crunch. It's a story of having a looming, seemingly impossible-to-meet deadline overhead at all times, of missing family and friends, of rising to a challenge. There are other interpretations, of course, and those are valid, but it's hard to ignore how the developer's feelings seeped into the game. We're exploring the development of the game this week in Legendary Adventures podcast. My name is Paul Riley. I'm a Zelda fan exploring the evolution of the series by playing through each game in release order. Each season of this podcast is focused on a different game. I'm covering only the mainline games in the series, no spin-offs or multiplayer releases. Majora's Mask, however, starts with another project, Ura Zelda. So let's kick off the season by taking a look at the development of Majora's Mask. Part 1, Ura Zelda. The development of Majora's Mask actually begins with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It was the subject of last season and is the fifth game in the Zelda series. It is also the first title in the series for the Nintendo 64 and the first in 3D. You may recall I mentioned last season that when the development on Ocarina of Time began it was intended for the Nintendo 64 DD. That was an ill-fated add-on that played games off of what were essentially large floppy disks. However, the developers ended up moving to a standard Nintendo 64 cartridge. Co-director Yoshiaki Koizumi stated that the decision for this was for technical reasons. He said Ocarina of Time just didn't work when they were trying to run it on Nintendo 64 DD. In a 2011 Iwata Asks interview about Ocarina of Time 3D, Koizumi said, With a magnetic disc, it takes time to move certain mechanical parts, so depending on where the data is, it takes time to retrieve it. So you couldn't make Link move. If there weren't many movements, you could fit them in memory, and you could read them to memory from the magnetic disc beforehand, but there were 500 patterns. He went on to say that some people were disappointed with the decision, but some, including himself, were happy. I speculated that Zelda co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto may have been one of the people disappointed with the decision, and that is because of Ura Zelda. This was a planned expansion of Ocarina of Time that would use the 64DD. IGN first reported on a second Nintendo 64 Zelda title for 64DD in 1997. We can see the earliest development of Ura Zelda overlapped with Ocarina of Time. The game is programmed with so-called hooks that recognize if a 64DD system is connected. I do not own a Nintendo 64 or a 64DD, and there is region locking on both the 64 and the 64DD. But people who have been able to work around these region locking issues have discovered a disc logo will appear on Ocarina of Time's title screen if a region-appropriate cartridge and DD are connected. This altered title screen can also be accessed through the use of debug tools or a cheat device like the Game Shark. In Ocarina of Time, these hooks are designed to pull data from the 64DD disc after a save file is loaded, which is different from other games with DD expansions, which gave the disc data priority from the moment the game was booted up. Miyamoto's initial statements about the game were vague. I suspect Miyamoto himself was still working out the details of what the project would ultimately be, and that likely wasn't finalized until after the release of Ocarina of Time. I can't find the first article covering the announcement, but an article from November of 1997 states that the project was initially known as Zelda DD. Miyamoto said that Nintendo has not decided whether Zelda DD will be a completely new game. It may still turn out to be a plug-in adventure which requires the original Zelda cartridge game and simply supplies the game with a new quest. In a newly translated interview from Famiga64 and posted on the website Time Extension, Shigeru Miyamoto was a little more direct. This interview was conducted at Nintendo's Space World 97 event. He said, 
Once we finish one Zelda game, it takes us two, three, even four years to make the next one. To keep things going in the meantime, we can easily release something like a second Quest version on the 64DD. For example, for a cartridge Zelda, we could make a Zelda that has some separate sort of feature that works with the cartridge and the 64DD. At the very least, don't expect something like a sequel to Zelda 64 to come out on the 64DD immediately. More like an expansion kit so that you could enjoy playing Zelda for even longer. He went on to refer to it as Zelda 1.5. He added, I don't think there'd be any changes or additions to the story. If we did something, it would be like a dungeon or something like that, where we could add the most requested feature that people have after playing the game. IGN asked Miyamoto about the project again in May of 1998. This is, to my knowledge, the first time it is referred to as Ura Zelda. Asked whether it would be a 64DD add-on to Ocarina of Time, Miyamoto said, I don't know if add-on is the right terminology. For the 64DD, we are working on a Zelda game which we call Ura Zelda, where you first play the initial disc version of Zelda. After finishing everything, you can enter into the world into the basic design of the same. The Japanese word Ura seems to be most commonly translated as another, though I've seen IGN use the word other on at least one occasion. Any 2011 Iwata Asks interview from Nintendo translates it as Flipside. By 1998, Miyamoto seemed to have a firm idea that Ura Zelda would reuse the world of Ocarina of Time. He said what would be different were the dungeons. This is similar in concept to the second quest from the original Legend of Zelda. Here's what he told IGN in November of 1998, just before the release of Ocarina of Time. If you connect Zelda with the disk drive, an icon will appear on the screen announcing Ura Zelda, or another Zelda. There were several ideas I could not incorporate in the current game because of the time shortage and other reasons. In the future, I want new areas and new dungeons to be available to players who have already finished Ocarina of Time, where they will find new challenges. Other features were speculated on over the years, including the ability to custom design masks and some sort of internet connectivity. It seems Miyamoto himself put forward these ideas. In that newly translated interview on Time Extension from Space World 97, Miyamoto said, Usually once a game is packaged and released, that's it. We can't do anything more to it. But I think it would be interesting if creators could continue to address things afterward, sort of like live updates. In an interview on Nintendo.com from Nintendo's Space World 99 event, Miyamoto said, Since the 64DD media is cheaper than a new cartridge, this is an inexpensive way to make a sequel. We may also consider using network technology for Ura Zelda. Did you know gaming also found articles where Miyamoto mentioned mass customization and network features? It's unclear if these ideas were ever truly going to be a part of Ura Zelda and to what extent they were even worked on. In an interview with IGN in August of 2000, Miyamoto said he couldn't remember ever talking about the potential for an internet-connected version of Ura Zelda. In 2022, Did You Know Gaming interviewed former Nintendo programmer Giles Goddard, who confirmed that he could recall work on a network Zelda, but he wouldn't say anything beyond that. Uh, and I want to stay alive, so I'm not gonna say what. I was contacted by Zeth Ryder, or Zeth N64. He's a longtime Zelda modder who has researched Ura Zelda extensively. Do a Google search for Ura Zelda, and Zeth's name is likely to pop up. Zeth and a few others searched through the files of the 2020 Nintendo Giga Leak. That's a collection of Nintendo code and assets that leaked online. Turns out data and files related to Ura Zelda were inside the leak. I asked Zeth about the possibility of network connectivity and customizable masks. He told me there's no reference to internet connectivity in any of the files. He suggested the feature may have been talked about among the developers, but was scrapped early on. When it comes to customizable masks, Zeth couldn't confirm the feature for sure, but he told me that there were some unexplained mentions regarding masks. 
He said he found the Gerudo mask item model in the 64DD files, which is strange because the mask is already in the game, so it wouldn't necessarily need to pull it from the DD. He also found a reference to another mask, but the file for that mask doesn't exist. What Zeth did find were dungeons, files that would replace the original Ocarina of Time dungeons with new rearranged versions. Seth shared an Excel sheet with translated commit logs with me, and pointed out dates on the log suggest that the first 64DD maps weren't inserted into the game until May of 2000. The disc was finalized and submitted for testing in June 2000. This seems to line up with statements from Shigeru Miyamoto, who told IGN in August of 2000 Ura Zelda was complete. But by that time, the 64DD was dead in the water. I mentioned last season it was released in Japan in December of 1999, and it was a commercial flop. IGN noted that Nintendo reps avoided talking about it by the middle of 2000, and the DD was officially discontinued in October of 2000. With the cancellation of the 64DD, it was thought that Ura Zelda would never see the light of day. That is until 2002, when Nintendo released Ocarina of Time for the GameCube as a pre-order bonus for The Wind Waker. Included on the disc was Ocarina of Time Master Quest. This, according to Nintendo, is what the Ura Zelda project became. It featured redesigned dungeons that are more challenging than those found in the original Ocarina of Time. It is not, however, the same version of Ura Zelda Zeth found in the Giga Leak that was completed in June of 2000. The commit logs note that work on the emulated GameCube release started in April of 2001. Zeth tells me a number of the maps were changed, and Ganon's castle was added as it was not planned for the original 64DD disc. For those interested in seeing this earlier version of Ura Zelda as it stood on the 64DD, Zeth worked with a small team to create a mod that restores the dungeons found in the Giga Leak. I have not checked this out myself yet, but Zeth tells me that it is more challenging than the version you may know from the Master Quest. If you want to check out these dungeons for yourself, I've included a link to Zeth's announcement trailer in the show notes. You'll find links there to Zeth's mod as well as instructions on how you can play it. And thanks to Zeth for help with this script. Part 2. Zelda Gaiden The plan was for Ura Zelda and its remix dungeons, so how did a full sequel to Ocarina of Time come out instead? Well, that kind of starts with one man, Eiji Onuma. He joined the Zelda team with Ocarina of Time and served as one of five directors for that game. He also designed all the dungeons of Ocarina of Time. In a 2015 interview with GameSpot, Aonuma said, Originally we were thinking of doing a rearranged dungeon version of Ocarina of Time for the disk drive, but I realized that the person who would have to do all the arrangement of the flip dungeons and would have to do all the tuning for that was going to have to be me. But I really didn't want to go back into the dungeons that we had just worked so hard to lay out and then have to rearrange them and tune them in that way. He expounded further in an Iwata Asks interview for Majora's Mask 3D, saying that he was handed the baton to rearrange Ocarina of Time's dungeons. I hesitantly obliged, he said, but I couldn't really get into it, so I secretly started making new dungeons that weren't in Ocarina of Time, and that was much more fun to me, so I grew up the courage to ask Miyamoto-san whether I could make a new game. He replied saying, it's okay if I can make it in a year. In an interview translated on Glitterberry's game translations, Miyamoto explained his reasoning for the one-year deadline. He said, It's a shame when a game takes three years to make. So I figured, why not do it in one? I wanted to be able to say, we can do it too. I thought if we just used the engine for Ocarina of Time and layered a new scenario on top of that, we'd be able to create a reasonably large game in 12 months. In that Awada Asks interview, Alnuma was asked his reaction to the year deadline. Did he respond by saying, sure, I can do it? No. 
I was holding my head, he said. But they pressed forward all the same. The new project was initially dubbed Zelda Gaiden, or Zelda Side Story. Today we know it as Majora's Mask. The name Majora comes from art director Takeya Imamura. In Japanese, it's Mujura. In a 2015 interview with Nintendo Dream, Eiji Onuma said Imamura came up with the name by mashing together his name, Imamura, with the title of the 1995 movie, Jumanji. Imamura corrected that in 2023 with an interview with Video Games Chronicle. He said it's a mashup of his name and a movie title, but... I wanted to use the Jura part because I'm a big fan of Jurassic Park. Ima Jura. That's where the name came from. Aonuma said in an interview translated on Glitterberry's game translations that programming on the game began on February 1st of 1999. Most of the original Ocarina of Time team worked on Majora's Mask. Some had already moved on to other projects, but were called back. In an interview on Glitterberry's games translations, Miyamoto said, We started out by cutting the Ocarina of Time development team in half and adding some new people. Once we realized our initial setup just wasn't going to work, I was forced to recall the original team members. In the end, around 70% of the team was made of people who worked on Ocarina of Time. Among those who were called back were Yoshiaki Kozumi and Takumi Kawagoe. Both were among the five directors of Ocarina of Time. After finishing Ocarina of Time, both moved on to a new project. Koizumi described it as a board game based around the theme of cops and robbers. Koizumi was reportedly working on something like the time loop scene in Majora's Mask for that game. Koizumi said, I wanted to make a game so that you could technically catch a criminal within a week, but in reality you could finish the game within an hour. He ultimately said that the project was cancelled as he returned to the Zelda team. He said, I figured I'd just throw what I already had into Majora's Mask. There is perhaps a slight contradiction in statements among Miyamoto and Anuma as to who brought Koizumi back to the team, or perhaps it's just that both were involved. In that Glitterberry's Games Translations interview, Miyamoto stated, Generally, I'd wait until July or August to start recalling people, once I saw there was no other way. But in this case, I realized how insurmountable our task was just a few months after starting, so I asked him to come back. Aonuma followed up that statement by saying, I tried to work on things all by myself, but I had no choice. I ended up asking Koizumi to come back. I couldn't have done it alone. Aonuma has made multiple statements over the years stating that he approached Koizumi and asked him to join the Majora's Mask project. In a 2017 interview on Japanese gaming website Denfa Minico Game, Aonuma said, I was going to be in charge of designing the dungeons, but somehow I became the director. I felt anxious about being the only director, so I called in Yoshiaki Koizumi, who was the 3D director for Ocarina. When I asked him to join us, he said, I'd go only if you let me do whatever I want to do. There are multiple credited directors on Majora's Mask, but according to Aonuma and Miyamoto, Aonuma was named as the supervising director over the entire project. We had six directors working on Majora's Mask, just doing the game design, Miyamoto said. There were even more directors in addition to them, but it was those six individuals who were involved in creating the foundation of the game. Aonuma was the supervising director. Koizumi worked on the sub-events and player-related aspects. Takano was in charge of the script. Yusui was involved in the dungeons, and Yamada was the head of the system management. Finally, Kawagoe served as the cutscene director. We call this the multifaceted director system, Aonuma joked. While Aonuma was the supervising director over the project, in the end credits, he and Koizumi are co-credited as the game system directors. Aonuma also stated that he was able to largely leave the other directors up to their own devices. In an interview on Glitterberry's game translations, he said, Because we had the same team on both Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, we already knew how things would turn out, even if they were never discussed. We had an idea of what to expect, and we just waited for it to unfold. 
We had multiple directors so people would create things individually and then put them all together at the end. That was our creative style. Shigeru Miyamoto stated that he had little involvement in the game after the initial design discussions. In a Nintendo.com interview from the Space World 99 event, he said, As time goes on, my direct involvement becomes less. On the first Zelda, my involvement in directing the game was, say, 100%. With Ocarina of Time, my involvement was about 60%. For Zelda Gaiden, it will be about 20%. Miyamoto expanded upon this in a July 2000 issue of Nintendo Power. He said, I've been making games this way for years. It's really just a matter of to what extent I'm involved in the day-to-day -day development. In this case, I worked with Mr. Aonuma to establish the basic principles of the game, then I left him to execute them. In a sense, we built a table together, and I've given him the freedom to put his own ideas on that table. As long as the table is still there when the game is finished, I'm happy. In the Glitterberries Games Translation interview, he said, Once the opening meetings were done with, I didn't really contribute anything. That being said, during the latter half of development, I'd occasionally complain about this or that, just like a tester. Koizumi told the interviewer the team would whisper among themselves, Miyamoto hasn't said a thing. He will eventually, right? Miyamoto laughed at that and said, I took it easy. Working on Majora's Mask was fun. So what did Miyamoto establish at the start of the project before he largely went hands-off? In the Glitterberries Games Translation interview, he said, I wanted to make a compact entry in the Zelda series that could be replayed over and over, revealing greater depth with each playthrough. He added, I wanted it to be dense, something with maybe four dungeons, a game where you could fight the bosses twice. Aonuma and Koizumi agree the Groundhog Day-like time loop came from Koizumi. He said, The three years we spent on Ocarina of Time taught us that it was difficult to create a ton of content. So this time around we wanted players to be able to play through what we'd created multiple times. In terms of how Onuma and Koizumi divided up their responsibilities over multiple interviews, they consistently described it as Koizumi being in charge of creating Clock Town and Aonuma being in charge of creating everything outside of Clock Town. Aonuma summed it up this way, I was responsible for creating the fairy tale sections, and Koizumi was responsible for creating realistic depictions of the lives of the town sequel. I tried to emulate the fantasy atmosphere we had in Ocarina of Time. I can't say for sure, but reading a 2015 interview from Nintendo Dream Magazine that was translated and published on Nintendo Everything, it sounds like the division between Clock Town and the rest of the game world was ordered by Shigeru Miyamoto. Aonuma said, I wanted to make things for the time management system too. I said I wanted the time management outside of Clock Town, but the gameplay becomes strict if the passage of time can be seen in the dungeons and on the field. That's why I was told to include time management only in Clock Town. Aonuma was not happy about that order from above. He said, it was really frustrating, so I put some occasions in the game. While Aonuma and Koizumi generally say their responsibilities were divided between Clock Town and the exterior areas, Aonuma noted that they occasionally broke out of their bounds. For example, Aonuma stated that Koizumi had a hand in designing Romani Ranch and the events involving Kremia and Romani. He said, because Kremia is at Milk Road, that place is part of the time management content and received the same treatment as Clock Town. Despite Koizumi being told only to plan Clock Town, he gradually encroached up to that area. The three-day cycle that the characters move through and repeat didn't spring into existence fully formed. Aonuma stated at first the plan was for a week-long cycle, but in an Iwata-asked interview, he said, when you returned to the first day, it was like, do I have to go through the entire week again? So we thought three days would be just right. He added the shorter time span made it easier for players. In this game, the times people do different things each day, and many different things happen, he said. But when the time span becomes a week, it's just too much to remember. You can't simply remember who's going where and doing what on each day. Many of the characters who appear in Majora's Mask will look familiar to players of Ocarina of Time. 
Aonuma said, I tried to use all the NPCs made in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, but they weren't really the same and they were kind of changed in a bad way, like a parody of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. In 2015, Game Informer asked Aonuma if the decision to reuse the characters from Ocarina of Time was a stylistic choice or a time and money saving decision. Aonuma said, it was a little of both. I think a lot of it comes down to those character models having the ability to express something that they couldn't in the setting of Ocarina, because we have this very different image for the world where Majora's Mask takes place. You know, we described it as being a nearby land, but I feel it's almost like another dimension. Even though these characters have a similar appearance to the version of them that appeared in Ocarina, they express something different in a different world. Not every character is the same as they were in Ocarina of Time, and some new characters were introduced as well. Art director Takeya Imamura said he made it a goal to change up the look of the game. In a 2021 interview with IGN, he said, We had to develop Majora's Mask in just one year, so it was a very short development window. When I saw the prototype of the game, I thought it looked too similar to Ocarina of Time, so it became my task to change the look of the game over a short period. Aonuma discussed the way that the art and the design of Majora's Mask differentiates from Ocarina of Time in a 2015 interview with GameSpot. He said, our goal, rather, was to create something familiar which had been warped in a very unusual and interesting way. And so the visuals we ended up with reflect that, I think. By comparison, you saw a lot more black being used. The entire world just felt a lot darker, and we wanted to do this to set it up as a distinction visually from the world you see in Ocarina of Time. In addition to the time loop, Majora's Mask has a heavy emphasis on masks. What else? The masks are used to grant Link's new abilities, or even to change his shape. In an Iwata Asked interview, Aonuma said, The development of Ocarina of Time was so long that we were able to put a lot of different elements into that game. Out of those, there were ideas that weren't fully utilized and the ones that weren't used to their full potential. One of those was the mask salesman. So in Majora's Mask, we felt it would be fun if Link himself transforms whenever he puts on those masks. As a basis of Zelda games, you're able to use items to do all sorts of different things, and we felt it would be a lot of fun if Link would acquire all these abilities by putting on these different masks. We felt it would expand the gameplay. So we made the game so Link could transform into Deku Link to fly in the air, Goron Link to roll across the land, and Zora Link so he could swim underwater. We also gave each of them a storyline. Legendary Nintendo composer Koji Kondo again returned to do the music for the game. In a 2014 interview with GameSpot, Kondo stated that the Legend of Zelda series is one of his favorites to compose for. He said, Because of the variety of worlds and landscapes that you encounter within the game, it allows me to imagine musical types that we've never heard before. I get to work on a lot of different genres to meet the variety of worlds and landscapes I'm seeing within the game, so I really enjoy working on that franchise a lot. For Majora's Mask in particular, he described an unusual inspiration for the musical direction of the game. When I saw the very first mask you see in Majora, I saw that and it really brought to mind for me, for whatever reason, a type of Chinese opera. The kind where the performers wear masks and the music is all percussive. And there's a lot of cymbals and bells and whatnot. Those two linked up when I first saw Majora's artwork, and I thought a Chinese-influenced theme would be the way to go. Chinese opera is of course not the only influence. In a 2015 interview with GameSpot, Aonuma said, we thought it would be interesting to switch between different genres in this game. We started to think about how we could match those up. For example, we thought about pairing the Zora people in the game with Bossa Nova. However, Kondo said that Aonuma was largely hands-off when it came to the music. 
He wasn't super hands-on, so I was able to create the kind of music that I thought was appropriate for the game that I was seeing. And I figured that if no one was complaining because I was creating quite a bit of music, then it must have been okay. The game's music, story, and gameplay systems all come together to create an experience that's more complex than Ocarina of Time. Anuma said that was by design. Speaking to Kotaku in 2015, he said, We knew we wanted to age up the themes of the events a little bit and get into a slightly more adult-feeling drama moment here and there. And so I think as a natural outcome of that, you wind up with slightly more difficult-to-understand sequences, and slightly more mature themes coming out along the way. Part 3. A Tale of Crunch So we've laid out how Majora's Mask came about, and a bit about how the game mechanics and looks came about. We also established how management set the one-year deadline for the team. The result was an intense work situation that strained and potentially even scarred those involved. It's no secret the team had to put in intense overtime to complete Majora's Mask within a year. Shigeru Miyamoto was upfront about that in interviews. With the amount of resources required for a Zelda game, we had everyone working overtime, he said. Striving for a unique experience with every game makes for hard work. Speaking to Devfa Minako in 2017, Aonuma said, I did my best to finish it within a year after I was done with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and I went out of my mind the whole time. English scriptwriter Jason Lung described some of the condition the developers were working in and how it impacted the game. Lung only got involved near the end of the project as translation and localization were underway. He was a writer for Nintendo Power and was tapped to write the English script after Dan Owson, who wrote the English scripts for A Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, and Ocarina of Time, was made manager of Nintendo.com. In an article for Nintendo Power, Lung shared entries from a journal he kept. He traveled to Japan to work directly with the Zelda team during localization. He described working 15 hours or more a day while he worked on the game. He said, normally we wrap things up around 10 p.m. Lung also wrote, The team rarely got to go home. As a result, many of the characters, like the Deku Scrubs, who are involved in the cross-country trading sequence, talk about not being able to spend time with their wives. Speaking to IGN in 2000, Aonuma described part of his typical workday. He said, First thing in the morning, I have to finish up the game specifications I failed to complete the night before. Then I bring the new specifications to the programmers and, at the same time, check on how they made everything based on the specifications I gave them the previous day. And I repeat this procedure until noon. Miyamoto then chimed in and said, I of course have the same experiences. At Nintendo it is often custom that we never make the whole game specifications at the beginning. But rather we are making something, and depending on what we are making, some other things. If you change one element, you have to change many others. Many directors work overtime and rewrite the design specifications at night. Even if you can't work the next day, you still have to finish the specs and place a memo with the changes on the programmer's desks. Speaking with Nintendo Dream in 2015, Anuma was asked if it was a harsh experience. He said it was. It has been a long time since I started working on Zelda, but I have almost never put in an all-nighter. However, I did once for the N64 version of Majora's Mask. I did that together with Koizumi and Takumi Kawagoe. We were responsible for a movie which Miyamoto had rejected the day before. We had to do it again until the next day and there was barely enough time. It left a lasting impression as I worked quietly in a room with no one around. Lung said, Director Eiji Anuma and Supervisor Takashi Tezuka told me how they've incorporated things from their everyday lives into the game. Throughout interviews, Anuma references how current events in the news and a wedding he attended with Yoshiaki Koizumi resulted in storylines being created for the game. It's not hard to notice that all throughout Majora's Mask, the various stories, from the main story down to the side quests, often contain references to being separated from family and friends. 
For example, the Goron Quest, Zora Quest, and Ikana Canyon Quest all feature instances of parents being separated from their children. The main storyline revolves around the Skull Kid being separated from his friends, and siblings Tattle and Tail are also separated at the start of the game. And while I don't know this was necessarily the idea from the start, it's hard not to notice that the game centers around a looming and ever-pressing deadline. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't other interpretations for the story and the events within Majora's Mask. This is a pretty rich game in terms of themes and stories, and there absolutely are other valid interpretations, including ideas about the stages of grief, or a Buddhist journey of enlightenment. I'm just pointing out that the developers' lives and their feelings also inform the story. And the game wasn't just inspired by the everyday lives of the developers, it bled into it. In an Awada Ask interview, Aonuma shared, At the time, I did have a sense that I was being pushed by something strange. I had a dream about it. It was a dream about being chased by a Deku. I was thinking about an event for the Deku and I'd been trying to figure out what to do with it. I thought of it at home, and the Dekus appeared in my dream. I woke up screaming. I went to work the next day, and that's when Kawagoe-san told me that he had finished a movie for the Dekus, so I had him show it to me, and the movie was exactly like my dream. I even told him, how did you know my dream? He laughed. That's how put up against the edge I was back then. Despite hours upon hours of hard work, as the one-year deadline was approaching, Miyamoto became concerned that the developers may not be able to finish in time. In the Iwata Ask interview, Aonuma said, At the time when I was told I had to make it in a year, I was extremely focused on thinking on how great it would be if I could make it happen, and how disappointed I would be if I couldn't do it. I started working on the game with that kind of mindset, but towards the end of the game's development, we had to work under severe time constraints. That's when Miyamoto-san told me that we could delay the game's release. That's when I got mad. I said to him pretty loudly, there's no way we can do that now. I also remember telling him, we'll definitely make this in one year. Looking back at it now, I said something unbelievable to my boss. And they did. The team was able to carry Majora's Mask over the finish line by their deadline. Majora's Mask was released in April of 2000 in Japan. It would launch in North America in October of that year and Nepal regions in November. It would go on to sell 3.36 million copies. That's according to RPGamer.com. That's less than half of what Ocarina of Time sold, and it's the fewest copies of any Zelda title up to that point. I can't say for sure, but I believe that there are a few factors driving the lower sales for Majora's Mask. For one, it required a peripheral to run, the Nintendo 64's 4MB expansion pack. The pack added additional RAM to the Nintendo 64. In his Nintendo.com interview at Space World 99, Miyamoto said the extra memory was needed to keep track of all the events that are happening simultaneously around the world. The game also featured more detailed graphics, which I suspect the memory pack may have possibly contributed to that. Another factor could be the declining popularity of the Nintendo 64. By 2000, Nintendo was preparing for the release of its next home console, the GameCube. Interviews around this time often feature discussion of the GameCube and future titles for that system. And it should also be noted that new consoles from other companies had already hit the market. Sega's Dreamcast was released in 1999, and Sony's PlayStation 2 was released in Japan just one month before Majora's Mask. According to Statista.com, sales for the Nintendo 64 peaked in 1998 when Ocarina of Time was released, and they were on the decline when Majora's Mask was released. This is likely in part because of the next wave of game consoles starting to hit the market. The final factor that may have affected the sales of Majora's Mask is its difficulty. The game is more complex and more difficult than Ocarina of Time, making it less accessible. In the 2015 GameSpot interview, Onuma was asked if he was surprised to learn that Majora's Mask is a divisive entry in the series. 
and if he expected some fans to be confused by it. He responded, I should start by pointing out that when the Nintendo 64 version of Majora's Mask came out, this was in the pre-internet era, so we didn't necessarily have as many opportunities as we do now for the voices of players to reach us directly. But I certainly did have a lot of opportunities to talk to friends and family who had played the game and to hear their reactions. And of course I heard some pretty interesting things among those. In fact, someone mentioned that they got pretty close to throwing the controller at one point, and that really stuck with me. But we also had the opportunity recently to solicit memories from Japanese players who had experienced the Nintendo 64 version of Majora's Mask on our website, and it was really interesting to see the kind of things that people would talk about. They also look back with very fond memories on some of these experiences. For example, we saw some comments where people were saying how the game got so hard they would have to call their mom or dad for help, but the way they relate it now is with sort of a fun nostalgic past to it. Following the release of Ocarina of Time's 3DS remake in 2011, Aonuma was tasked by Miyamoto to head up a similar remake for Majora's Mask. He said he refused at first. In an interview with the Japanese magazine Famitsu, summarized on Silicon Era, he said, I have some really troublesome memories from originally developing Majora's Mask, and there were many things I would have liked to change if I were ever to do a remake. So at first I said no. He expanded on that in the Iwata Ask interview. I said this before, but this is one of those games where I was able to do quite a bit because I was younger, so I didn't want to open that lid again. He laughed. I knew as soon as I opened it, I would break out into a cold sweat. He laughed again. As in a please pretend that didn't happen kind of way, he said with a laugh. Of course, we're not allowed to pretend it didn't happen, but I didn't want to work on another iteration. But I was met by Miyamoto-san's firm, Nope. A team at Grezzo worked on the remake, and Anuma supervised the development. He and the team at Grezzo developed a what-in-the-world list of design elements they found to be off or overly confusing and made a number of changes to the game. These changes are controversial among fans of Majora's Mask. Aonuma, however, is happy that he opened that lid and remade Majora's Mask. In the Iwata Ass interview, he said, My traumas from 15 years ago have finally disappeared. And again, he laughed. According to Wikipedia, citing the Computer Entertainment Suppliers Association, Majora's Mask 3D performed similarly to the original release on the market. It sold 3.44 million copies. Part 4. A New Season In this season of Legendary Adventures Podcast, I'm of course going to play through Majora's Mask. Each week I'll describe my gameplay through each of the game's four dungeons and its final challenge, and I'll try to mix in some interesting information along the way. To set some expectations, I will be playing the Nintendo 64 version of the game on Wii U. I'm not going to do a concurrent playthrough of Majora's Mask 3D. I felt I couldn't work a dual playthrough into my schedule, and I have no way to record video from a 3DS for the YouTube editions of these episodes, so I'm keeping the gameplay to just one version. Don't expect me to really talk about any differences between the two versions. I feel I should also point out some of my own history with the game. As I have said, I did not have a Nintendo 64 during its heyday, and I did not ever play Majora's Mask on its original hardware. My first experience playing the game was on Wii Virtual Console. I also ended up not finishing that game the first time I played it. I just never got into the right mindset to manage the three-day cycle, and I wound up quitting in the middle of Snowhead Temple. My first experience playing through the game in full was with Majora's Mask 3D. I relied heavily on a walkthrough for that playthrough because of my negative feelings from my initial attempt to play through it on Wii. This is only the second time I've ever done a full playthrough of Majora's Mask, and it'll be the first time I play through the original version in its entirety. Don't expect me to know every secret or every trick that there is to Majora's Mask. 
Last season, I also had a number of bonus episodes, more than any other season before it. To keep expectations in check, don't expect many bonus episodes this season. Interviews on Ocarina of Time were much more detailed, and I felt they held much more information. The information that I did leave out of scripts I felt could be spun off into those short bonus episodes. Interviews on Majora's Mask on the whole are much more vague, so anticipate there being just a couple of bonus episodes. I have written a few, but they will release at the very end of the season. Next week we'll start the journey with the first three-day cycle, and we'll take on the Swamp and Woodfall Temple. If you want to follow along, please subscribe. To everyone who has already subscribed, thank you. I truly appreciate it. Please also consider sharing this podcast with a fellow Zelda fan. I'm Paul Riley. I'll see you next week.